The Horse Race is brought to you by Benchmark Strategies. Benchmark is setting a new standard as Boston's fastest-growing public affairs consulting firm. To know more, connect with Benchmark on Twitter at Benchmark Boston. Today on The Horse Race, why are there so many vacant public housing units when wait lists for these units are so long? What's in the legislature's long-awaited tax relief agreement? And questions that plague us all, are there DoorDash customers living in ponds in Middleton? It's Thursday, September 28th. back to the horse race, your weekly look at politics, policy, and elections in Massachusetts. I'm Jennifer Smith, here with my co-host Steve Kazella. Lisa Kaczynski will join me slightly later in the episode to talk about tax relief. There were a couple elections this week, as well as the Mass Dems convention, but we, we here today, have something much more important than that to talk about. We have polling, national presidential polling. Steve, what is the latest? We do. And I will say here at the top, for those of you who came expecting or hoping for a recap of the Mass Dems convention, there are many out there. I would suggest going and finding one of them. Like one by uh, Lisa Kaczynski. (laughs) Exactly. Lots of stuff happened. There was singing. So definitely do check it out. But there is polling and the polling is worth discussing because the polling is both interesting and has been a bit controversial. And essentially what's going on is we're still very, very far out from the general election in 2024. And the polls are diverging very significantly, or I should say major and high profile polls are diverging very significantly. Um, So, for instance, this last week we had one from NBC. We had one from the Washington Post and ABC. We had a couple others that have come out kind of in the last week or two, and they're showing very different things. The one that caused probably the biggest controversy was the one from the Washington Post, which showed basically Donald Trump with a pretty sizable lead, nine or ten point lead whereas others have shown something closer to either a tie or perhaps Biden a little bit ahead. So that caused a lot of head scratching, a lot of anxiety, a lot of tweeting or Xing or whatever we're calling it now. So worth kind of stopping on that and digging in on it a little bit. All right, well, let's scratch our heads and ask what the heck is going on there. Uh, Steve, what the heck is going on there? (laughs) Well, the first thing that's going on is it's 15, 14 months, something like that, 13 months, I can't do math, out from the general election. And the overall message from me, a pollster who makes a living on polls, is you don't have to live and die by them right now. The thing that you should do if you are either a politico or interested in politics, if you really care who wins, whatever you'll wish you had done in 2024, in November of 2024, do it now. If that's volunteer, do that. If it's donate, do that. You know, don't sit there and scratch your head over the polls and have that be your level of political engagement and that be all you do. With that said, probably the best way to describe the Washington Post poll is an outlier. And that's not necessarily to say that it's wrong. It's just to say that it's different from other polls. There are a whole bunch of reasons why that can happen, but probably the most important thing to say is there's really no way at this point to say what poll is right. Because as we often say, the election's not held today. The poll questions are often, if the election were held today, who would you vote for? But there's still a long way to go, which introduces a whole bunch of ways that polls can be not wrong, but 
polls can diverge from one another. So one is, for example, that you have a demographically different set of people who have made it through your pipeline or made it through your funnel to be called a likely voter. So most of these surveys, most of these big national surveys, they actually survey a representative sample of U.S. adults. And then they basically apply a filter, or if you want to think about it as a funnel, where only certain voters or only certain respondents get through to even answer the questions about whether they're going to vote for Joe Biden or vote for Donald Trump. So you can just imagine that that being the case, you might end up with a relatively more educated, relatively less educated you know, sample, uh, which is a big thing in partisanship. You might end up with just a different party composition, which certainly happens as well. Some of these things are corrected by waiting or some of these things are tweaked by waiting. Many of these things are not tweaked by waiting. So that's definitely one of the ways that things can change. Okay, well, uh, just in case President Joe Biden is like 15 months is not long enough for me to be worried about this kind of polling. uh, Should he be? Not about this kind of polling. No, I mean, I think both Joe Biden and Donald Trump could find lots of political indicators to worry about. You know, there's lots of polling data that shows both of them are viewed pretty negatively in a lot of different ways, Um, you know, certainly on very different attributes. And I'm not in any way doing both sidesism here. It's just that if the question is, should they be worried, then there are political indicators for each that says that they should be worried and that there's not in any way a guarantee that they're going to make it through into office. I mean, for this particular poll, I think it probably won't keep the Biden people up much at night. It varies so dramatically from everything else we know at this point. All the other data we have, special election results that we've seen that seem to favor Democrats, exit polls from 2020. There's just no suggestion that things really have turned this badly. You know, that young people have suddenly turned away from Joe Biden and toward Donald Trump, which is one of the things the poll suggests. So, yes, definitely always run like you're behind in any election, but not because of this poll. Well, you know what I'm worried about today, Steve? It's not knowing why I'm here. Do you have any answers about that? I don't. I don't know why we're here. I've given up on trying to answer the big existential questions. But what I think we should do for the next few minutes is first we'll talk to our good friend Todd Wallach from WBUR about a very interesting piece he wrote on affordable housing vacancies, which isn't a word we hear that often these days in Massachusetts. And then we'll look at the big tax package that legislative leaders just rolled out and what's actually in it. So should we saddle up? Let's go. Massachusetts has an extensive public housing system with an enormous wait list. That makes sense given the housing affordability and the housing supply crisis. So why are over 2,000 of these units vacant? There was an excellent WBUR and ProPublica investigation asking this question, and here to discuss his research on the issue is WBUR reporter Todd Wallach. Todd, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks so much. It was good talking to you. So let's start with some basics, because this isn't an issue that everybody's steeped in. The public housing system is, of course, complicated. So start with just like, what are the major categories of public housing in Massachusetts? What are the ones we're talking about here? Yeah, no, ab- absolutely. And when people think about subsidized housing, it's, it's even broader. I mean, there's public housing, which is government run, and there's both federal and state. There are vouchers, there are federal vouchers, there are state vouchers. There's lots of subsidized units run by nonprofits and other private developers with some units set aside for people with lower incomes. Uh, So it is a huge universe, and it's very complicated for people uh, who are applying for help. 
In this case, we look specifically at the state public housing system, which by itself is, is really unusual. I mean, only four states even have state public housing, and Massachusetts has more than double the other three states put together. So we have the biggest state public housing system in the country, and it is a key part of the way that the state tries to help people who can't afford the crazy cost of rent in Massachusetts. So that's kind of the scale of the public housing inventory. Can you explain the scale of the vacancy problem here? We talk about higher vacancy rates in the private market actually being a good thing. So why is it too high in the affordable market? Yeah, absolutely. And it is true. We have a tremendous crunch for housing. Uh, according to Boston PADS, only about 1% of the private units in greater Boston are available. And that includes some that are just crazy expensive. I mean, the average cost of a two-bedroom in Massachusetts is $3,000, and many are much, much, much higher. But you would think that the vacancy rate should be even lower for public housing because they're so affordable. Uh, rents are capped at between 27 and 32% of people's income for state public housing. And if you don't have any income, you just have to pay $5 a month. That's the minimum. In fact, there's a wait list of 184,000 people for state public housing. So huge demand. And that's what made it all that more surprising to find out that nearly 2,300 of those units are unoccupied. So you have basically 90 people on the wait list for every one of these vacancies. If you just compare the size of the wait list with the size of the vacancy uh, issue that you described. So how does that happen? What are the barriers between 100 plus thousand people waiting in line and the 2000 units that are waiting for people? Yeah, well, uh, like every public policy issue you probably deal with, there's more than one answer, more than one cause. Uh, one of the biggest reasons that local housing officials cite is problems with the state wait list. Uh, until a few years ago, every local housing agency managed the wait list themselves, and there are 230 across the state that have state public housing. But four years ago, the state went to a central wait list. And the idea was to make it easier for people to apply. They wouldn't have to go to each separate one. They could check mark all the towns they were interested in, and also to reduce concerns that there might be favoritism or corruption at the local level. So it had a lot of good intention, and there were reasons why people wanted to do it. But it hasn't worked out. Immediately when they put the system in place, uh, there were complaints that it was just slowing it down. There are all sorts of problems with the new system. A lot of people, now that they're filling it out online, don't understand exactly the rules of who, what priorities to check, what, how many bedrooms they can qualify for, all sorts of details. So they'll fill it out incorrectly, or they'll move around and their address and contact information isn't current in the system. People are now applying for an average of 20 places. I talked to one woman who applied to 178 cities and towns. And because everyone's now drawing on the same central wait list, the names usually come to the top for lots of different agencies at the same time. And they're all sending mailings to the same person at the same time, all holding units for the same person at the same time. And there's no upfront screening, uh, no background checks at the beginning. And they'll often find out the person needs to be moved down lower on the list or they don't qualify. It's become a mess. Uh, one housing 
director in Agawam near Springfield told me that it used to take a few months to fill a vacancy. Now it takes years. Uh, and she showed me units that had been sitting for two years in good condition. I mean, if that's just one problem, it seems insane. And there are others, I assume? Uh, yes, absolutely. So like a lot of issues that you deal with, another issue is money. So local housing authorities say they often don't have enough staff to find tenants uh, or they don't have enough staff or money to do repairs. And some of those repairs have mounted over years. So their units in, in Adams, for instance, in northwestern Massachusetts, that are in such rough condition they've been condemned. There's some units that have been torn down over the years and lost because they're in terrible condition. The state estimates there's $3.2 billion backlog in repairs that need to be made. Some advocates think it's more than double. It might be $8 billion. And even when there's just simple stuff like cleaning a unit or repainting it, a lot of housing authorities say they're so busy with the major stuff like plumbing in some units, they don't have time to just do the simple stuff to turn over a new unit and make it available for tenants. And I suspect there might be yet another reason for this vacancy wait list. Wow, am I getting tired of saying that? You should be, and you were right. So we also found that there are more than 120 units that local housing authorities are using for things other than housing. That includes offices, that includes storage. For instance, Salem's using one apartment intended for seniors uh, as an employee break room and for file storage. Uh, Somerville's even using a two bedroom for its own police station and office space there. So it all raises questions about, is that the best use of these units at a time when the housing crisis is so severe that the governor says it's basically a state of emergency and shelters are full and they're having to put families in hotel rooms on an emergency basis. So since your story came out, there's been a fair amount of official reaction, including, it sounds like, a major push to try to actually fill some of these units over just the next couple months. What are some of the steps that they're taking and are there any early signs of success or is it just too early to say at this point? Uh, definitely. It's gotten huge reaction. I was just tuning into a webinar that uh, the Executive Office of Housing was running on a 90-day push that they are making to try to fill as many units as possible by the end of the year. And they are offering money and assistance to local housing authorities across the state to try to speed up the process of filling units and doing those simple repairs uh, it's harder when you have units that are condemned, but there are a lot of units that are in decent condition and can be turned around more quickly. And they're also making changes to the state waitlist that's been much maligned. Uh, for instance, they've hired an outside vendor to help go through the backlog of people who've claimed priority or other types of preferences and check out to see whether they actually qualify for those priorities. Uh, and they're making little technical changes as, as well, just all in the hopes to try to speed up the process so that they can fill these units. You mentioned up top, Massachusetts is in a fairly small group with this kind of public housing system and this kind of sort of uh, process for actually getting people into these affordable units. Are the other states with this sort of infrastructure running into similar problems or is this an us problem? It is a really good question. It is basically an us problem because we are so 
unusual in this way. I mean, there are only three other states that have state public housing, Connecticut, New York, and Hawaii. Two of them, uh, Connecticut and New York, are so decentralized, they don't even track it. They don't have a statewide wait list or, or system. And Hawaii is just tiny. Uh, they have fewer than 1,000 units overall, whereas we have uh, more than 41,000, and they have 68 vacancies. They're just a much, much smaller system. So we are unusual in having this type of statewide system and a statewide waiting list. I should say that vacancies have been a problem at some local housing agencies around the country that manage federal housing, but it varies a lot because there are no statewide or even national wait lists for federal housing. It varies a lot from city to city to city. All right. Well, head over to WBUR.org if you want to read more. For now, Todd Wallach of WBUR, thanks so much for joining us. All right. Really appreciate it. It's been many months, years even, of Massachusetts officials saying a tax relief package is a high priority. But after all that time, it appears they have finally actually agreed on one. Lisa Kaczynski, you're here to break it down. You were running around the statehouse all day. What is the top line on the annual budget impact? What are they proposing? So it comes in about what they budgeted, actually a little under in the first year. So it'll be about $561 million, but that's going to grow. So by fiscal 2027, which seems like a long way off, but in fiscal years is actually only three years away, when this whole thing would be fully phased in, it's going to be over a billion dollars. And you may have detected a little bit of sass in my voice from the introduction, but they've been talking about this as a priority for quite some time. But there have been a few road bumps. Uh, I apologize to any listeners who don't want to hear kind of the dreaded haunted noise of 62F again, but we have to talk about it. Lisa, what happened last time they tried to do tax reform? So this is like 20 months in the making at this point since... Now, former Governor Charlie Baker proposed this in January of 2022, nearly got it through, only for it to be derailed at the very last minute. Actually, I think possibly past the last minute of when session was supposed to end, because time gets really weird on July 31st of the last day of session. Basically got derailed last summer by, as you said, the triggering of Chapter 62F and the $3 billion in rebates that had to go out because of that. Lawmakers got cold feet, backed off. It came up again with Governor Maura Healey when she took over in January. I think she didn't actually propose it till March, but that's besides the point. And here we are in September of 2023, finally, hopefully, maybe, with the tax relief package that is probably being voted on while you're listening to this. Oh, don't you love how time works? Because we are not only recording this in the past, we are recording this double in the past. It is Tuesday. They have spent the entire day putting tax relief on the stage, making us look at fact sheets, answering some questions. And part of the thing that, you know, has to be discussed is its context within the broader Healy administration's priorities. They've been really pushing this as one of the many factors to deal with kind of the competitiveness concerns as compared to other states, higher cost of living. And that's really been one of the tensions as this tax relief has rolled out as well, is the simultaneous argument that the reason that that so many people are leaving Massachusetts or just aren't able to stay as much as anything else is because of how much we ask people to pay, essentially, through taxes. And then the counter argument to that is, 
well, the cost of living in general, you know, cost of being here in Massachusetts isn't much to do with how effectively you can do some short-term trades, but more in terms of can you afford to stay in your rented apartment. So how have you seen that actually play out now that we have something in front of us? Where did they come down on? Let's let's start on that one. Short-term capital gains. Five or twelve? Neither. Surprisingly, or maybe unsurprisingly, depending on how you thought this would end up, lawmakers met in the middle. I guess compromise can still happen on Beacon Hill, um, which is something that the top Democrats who gathered in both chambers were joking about, um, despite all the drama that is cooking between chambers. They came together on this one. So capital gains will be cut from 12% to 8.5%. Well, let's break down a few of the differences here between the versions, but let's use Healy's proposed budget as kind of an anchor point. You have a breakdown uh, here in the future for us, the past for the listeners, sometime in the blank nothingness of space for pretty much everybody else, where you go through essentially what Healy wanted and what she's ending up with out of the compromise. So let's give us a point counterpoint, shall we? So the governor wanted the capital gains, short-term capital gains tax rate to be cut to 5%. She wanted the estate tax threshold to rise to $3 million, up from $1 million. And she wanted to increase the child and dependent tax credit, kind of reform and increase it to $600 a year. Lawmakers met her most of the way on those things, where, as we've already said, 8.5% for the short-term capital gains tax rate, the estate tax threshold will rise to $2 million, not $3 million, and they're giving her, they're phasing it in, but effectively in the end, $440 a year for the child tax credit as opposed to the $600 that she wanted. So what's this look like from the business community's perspective? They've been some of the folks who have been pushing kind of the competitiveness language the hardest. Are we going to be competitive enough in their view? We're going to be competitive. Whether it's enough, I think, is a kind of subject of debate based on the press releases in my inbox on today, Tuesday, and likely thereafter by the time that you're listening to this. Basically, this was probably the best case scenario that business groups could have hoped for in a realistic sense, the likelihood that they were going to get the full cut to the capital gains tax rate. They wanted the estate tax threshold up to $5 million, I believe. And some of these other things, you know, that wasn't going to happen. That wasn't what lawmakers were putting on the table. That wasn't even in some cases what the governor was putting on the table. But they got some other things instead, like the single sales factor change, which is basically a change in how the state calculates corporate taxes. And, you know, things like that, that kind of soften the blow, I guess, of not getting fully what they wanted on things like capital gains and the estate tax. So more competitive, yes, based on what they were arguing, very much so more competitive maybe remains to be seen. So there were a bunch of taxes that I think would fall under the category of essentially like relatively small amounts, but to large numbers of people. You mentioned the child and dependent credits. Why don't you run through a few of the other provisions that have been pitched as essentially going out to families, to individuals, to renters? This is where pretty much everyone was in agreement from the start, where they would double the senior circuit breaker tax credit to $2,400, raise the rental deduction cap from $3,000 to $4,000, and the earned income tax credit is going to rise to 40% of the federal um, as opposed to the 30% that it is now. 
And what does this look like practically? You know, those are kind of the high level numbers, but getting into sort of how many people are benefiting from each of these individual credits and what are they actually saving essentially? So we're going to see about 400,000 people benefit from the raise in the earned income tax credit. And those are people who make under $60,000 a year. We're going to see about 565,000 families benefit from the child and dependent tax credit. And for the big one, we're going to see about 800,000 renters benefit from the increase in that deduction cap. So let's talk about some of the, what I would call, fun bonus bullet points at the bottom of the informational two-pager that we all got today. Uh, The 62F elephant in the room, there are going to be some changes to that if it's ever triggered again. What the heck? So this is actually a really big change that's actually been kind of divisive. Um, So right now, if Chapter 62F is triggered, the rebates would go out based on the proportion that someone paid in on their taxes. Under the new way of doing this, should it pass, and it's likely to, all the checks that would go out would be of equal value. It doesn't matter how much you paid into the system, you would get the same number back. Like everyone would get, say, $300. That part of it is a big change, and that's something that the House had put forward and the Senate kind of surprisingly went for in the end because, um, you know, the Senate Ways and Means Chair was pretty emphatic when they rolled this out that this was not a place, you know, tax reform, the budget was not a place where they were going to try to tinker with policy on 62F like this. And then they ended up agreeing to it anyway. And the other thing that has been quite controversial, of course, has been the way that this interacts with the fairly recent voting in of the Fair Share Amendment millionaire's tax, whatever you want to call it, surtax on any income over a million dollars, which in this year, at least they're planning on about a billion in revenue to spend on various things because of that. And this will end up, of course, taking some of that revenue and putting it toward tax breaks. And something that was the final interesting bottom bullet point here is closing what progressive watchdogs have basically been calling a loophole in the way that Massachusetts tax structure works, which is saying that married couples have the option in Massachusetts, as they do in some other states, to file jointly at the federal level and then get all of those benefits on the federal taxes for doing so, but then file separately here in Massachusetts, which would allow them if, say, both spouses made up to or over a million dollars to essentially keep $2 million without being impacted by this new tax rather than just the one. So conservative groups have basically said that this is essentially imposing a marital penalty on folks, uh, disincentivizing them from filing jointly if they have to file the same way on the federal and the state level to keep it consistent. There is some question about whether or not this is going to end up being a huge problem because couples could end up basically deciding, well, we're going to figure out what the biggest tax advantage is. Is it filing separately so that you can keep your exemption under the Massachusetts millionaire's tax? Or is it filing jointly at the federal level so that you can avail yourselves of those benefits? So yet to see how that's going to end up playing out. It was really interesting to see both that and 62F changes make it through in this final compromise because those had been the target of a bunch of fights. Lisa, before we peace out here on this lovely Tuesday night, What is the number one thing that you are watching to see if it makes it through Healy? Honestly, I'm going to be really curious to see if the governor fights any of this, particularly 
some of the things that weren't her proposals, like, you know, the changes to 62F um, or the millionaire's tax and things, some of those things that, you know, that were surprising to see get through in the first place. Um, I don't think she had the single sales factor on her uh, bingo card, so to speak, or tax relief proposal, though, you know, I can't see why, given kind of the overture she's making to the business community and the competitiveness with that, that she would say no to it. Um, But they definitely threw some things at her that were not part of her original package. And I'll be curious to see what she does with them. Well, Lisa, you and I have almost an entire week left to see how this thing all shakes out. Everybody else, enjoy the extra entire workday and a half to think about what we're doing with tax relief. All right. Well, that brings us to our final segment, which this week comes to us from the extensive research department that we have within the Non-Navigable Waterways Bureau of the Horse Race Global Media Empire Headquarters. Jen, what did the research department turf up for us this week? Well, some poor DoorDash driver in Middleton um, apparently ended up in the water because they were following their GPS to an address while trying to deliver Dunkin' Donuts uh, and while trying to make the delivery to an address in Middleton began driving down a dirt road and then somehow ended up driving into a body of water. I assume uh, because a watery bint with a scimitar uh, wanted a Dunkin' Donuts. That's a very deep, deep cut there, Jen. I'm not sure the Youngs will quite grasp that one, but I do appreciate it. So definitely Google it if you want to know what that reference is from. For now, that is all the time we have for today. I'm Steve Kazella signing off with Jennifer Smith and Lisa Kashinsky. Our producer, as always, is the great John Gee. Don't forget to give the Horse Race a review wherever you're hearing us now. Subscribe to the Massachusetts Political Playbook and Commonwealth Magazine's Daily Download and reach out to us here at the Massing Polling Group if you need polls or focus groups done. For now, thank you all for listening and stay out of that water. 